This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. Adulthood Made Easy, a podcast from Real Simple Magazine that will not only help you navigate real life, but win at real life. I'm your host, Sam Zabel. I think two of the most uncomfortable things to talk about with when it comes to your career, especially for people my age, one is money and the other is quitting or leaving. We've already talked about money and we've gotten past the uncomfortableness of asking for a raise or asking for what you want. But what we haven't really talked about is what to do when it comes time to leave your job or move on to a new one. And as I was thinking about this, a book came across my desk called Leap, Leaving a Job with No Plan B to Find the Career and Life You Really Want. And the author, Tess Vigland, is here with me today to talk about how she left her 11-year job as the anchor of Marketplace on public radio. Now she's the CEO of Tess Vigland Productions, which is a multimedia company based in L.A., but she's here to talk about her book, Leap, and explain to us what it's like to just leave a job that you've been at for 11 years and how to make a new career for yourself. So welcome, Tess. Thank you, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here, and I should point out that I spent 11 years talking about money, so if you'd like to talk about that, we can do that too. <laughs> <laughs> I did see that. I liked your advice in your book that was like, before we get before we get started, let's get something out of the way. Save and don't spend as much as you make and all those good right. basic tips for everyone. Right, I'm right. Sure you get asked all, all, all the, the time. rules for, for money. They're actually quite simple, but they're very hard to put into place. Exactly. I don't know how many times I've been told to make a budget and stick to it. And you're like, it's much easier said than done. (laughs) It's very much easier said than done. I think we should also point out that we are both wildcats. We both went to Medill, which I learned and was very excited to hear about. Yes. I could probably talk about Northwestern for a while, but why you're really here is because you just wrote this book, which the title itself really piqued my interest because, like I mentioned, the idea of leaving a job. Granted, I've only been here at Real Simple for two years. The idea of leaving a job freaks me out. And you left a job that you were at for 11 years. And I'd like to hear a little bit to start about, you know, what it was like to realize that the time was coming up to leave. Because I know you said that there are there are a few signals. Your body shows you that it's time to leave through stress. You start questioning your future plans and you start to feel undervalued. So can you kind of talk about, you know, the weeks or months leading up to when you realized that you were going to kind of take the jump? Yeah, well, so for me, this was uh, an even bigger deal because not only was I leaving the job that I had had for 11 years, but I felt like I was actually getting ready to leave a career of 20 plus years. And, you know, when you start to think about that, it's terrifying. It's really terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I even knew just how ready I was to leave until I was like on the precipice of doing it. I do think there were signals there, the, the stuff that you've already talked about, but I didn't pay attention to them because I didn't want it to be true. I didn't want it to be true that I needed to leave because I still loved my job. I still loved the actual work that I was doing. Mm-hmm. I got to I got to talk to listeners all the time. I got to 
you know, commit journalism. And I got to do it on a national stage, which is really exciting. And like what journalist doesn't want that. But in the weeks and months leading up to my eventual departure, I just had, I had all kinds of feelings of uh, restlessness. I think I was a little bored with what I was doing because I had been doing the same thing for a very long time. There were issues going on with my workplace that I just felt were not going to resolve themselves in a way that was going to work for me. And I kind of stopped looking forward to Monday. And you don't ever want to get to that point. I mean, the way I put it is, uh, you know, it's, it's time to go when you have too much self-respect to stay. You have to listen to that. And, you know, I also talk about how if you are asking yourself how you'll know when it's time to go, it's past time to start thinking about it and to start exploring it, as scary as it is. And I, I think that I wonder, do you feel like it's something that you have to think about for a few weeks or months at a time? Because I feel like there are times in everyone's job where you're having an off week or a project goes really sour or, you know, something happens that you're having in that week where you're just – you're going on a bunch of interviews because you're like, I'm out of here. This is done. But it's just one of those, like, just off weeks. Like, how long did you kind of wrestle with this idea before, before deciding to leave? Well, it's funny because I don't I don't think I was consciously wrestling with it. Mm, I think okay. that I was subconsciously asking myself, you know, why are you still here? What is it that's keeping you here? What is it that's keeping you from moving on if it doesn't feel quite right? But, you know, I mean, yes, of course, we all have those weeks. Sometimes we have months, like a whole month where just things just don't go well at work. And it's so frustrating. So, you know, I would say certainly if you're getting that feeling and it's only been a week, don't quit. Now, of course, it depends on the situation. If you are in a situation where you are not being treated appropriately, get out. It is not Mm -hmm. worth it. You have one life to live and you don't want to spend it with time. You you don't want to spend it, you know, with with people who, who don't respect you and don't respect your value in the workplace. But If it's not that, if it's more a feeling like I had, again, that I wasn't really recognizing, where you just have an unease about where you are, where you are in your career, what's coming next for you, then that's when you want to start taking a little bit of time to think about this process. Now, I will fully admit, I didn't think about it. I quit in a fit of peak. Now, I gave them three months before I left. But there were just some things that happened that that prompted me to say, you know what, I need to go. Uh, I'm done here and I need to see what else is on offer out there. And I think that, I mean, you mentioned that this isn't like the first time you've quit a job. You'd quit three times prior to this. But this seems like the first time it's in your title that you quit with no plan B. Yeah. And something you said in your book that really resonated with me, you said, leaping is difficult. We are all expected to have five-year and 10-year plans. We are expected to have a dream of that next thing we want to do. But a lot of us don't. What we have is a fear of the unknown future and a severe allergy to sharing that fear with other people. So that, I mean, when I read that, I was like, that's so true. I don't, you know, this idea of the five and 10 year plan, I think really trips people up. And so I wonder what it was like this time to quit your job without having a place to go the following Monday or, you know, having a week off and then having a new job to go to. 
Yeah, well, that's a lot to unpack right there. So let's start with the fact that I, I mean, my whole life, I was the type A person who I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I knew exactly where I wanted to be, at what age. I knew what my goals were. I had the two-year plan. I had the five-year plan. I had the 10-year plan. And on top of all that, I executed it. I mean, I did it. I basically did everything that I set out to do as an adult. From which from is where really I impressive. Went. Well, it is, and I will own that. You know, I yeah. I had a remarkably successful career, and I am so fortunate that you know I I had parents who who were supportive of me. I had friends who were there, and you know, I I, I just I really had the career that a lot of journalists dream of. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful for that. So when I got to my own national radio show at age 32, I was like, oh, my God, I'm here. I have arrived. This is amazing. And it was the place where I had always wanted to be. Marketplace was the show that from the time I left college, that, that's where I wanted to be. Well, I thought I would just be a reporter. I ended up being an anchor at age 32. So for right. 10 years, I had that dream job. I had that thing that I had been working for really hard for a very long time. And then when I got to the point where I started to realize that maybe it was time for a change, um, I looked around and I said, well, wait a minute, you have your dream job. What comes after that? How do you prepare yourself for kind of post dream job? And those are the sorts of things where when you don't have a plan B, you have to confront those. That said, I think it's an inc- incredibly valuable experience. It's an incredibly valuable time to go through, to ask yourself what's important to you in a job, to ask yourself what really turns you on in the job that you have, what turns you off, and how you can find those other things that turn you on, maybe in a different place, perhaps even in a different vocation. I think that and I definitely think that you've you it sounds so wise and that's all very valuable advice, especially it's always good to hear someone who's been through it and come out the other yes. side and and is like, I made it, you know, you can take the jump and be okay. But I'm wondering what it felt like, you know, the day after your last day, uh-huh. like what what went through your head before you knew that it would all work out and before you knew that you could experiment and before you had all the wisdom that you've now gathered into your book? What, I mean, what, what went through your head the day after when you were like, I, I didn't think of a plan B or I didn't <laughs> think of the next step? Right. Well, I'll take you back to the three months prior to that last day where, you know, after I, after I handed in my resignation, I figured I have three months. By the time I get to the end of those three months, I'm going to know exactly what's going on. I'm going to have job offers. I'm going to at least have a lot of feelers out there. I'm going to do networking, and it's all going to be great. And by the time I leave, I'm going to have another job lined up. This is how much I was not prepared to not have a plan B. I knew, I knew that after 20 years, I was going to get another job. It was not going to be an issue. So this no plan B thing is not something that I thought was going to happen. It's not something I plan. I did not plan to not have a plan B. It turned out those were some of the, the those those three months were some of the busiest of my entire career. So I I didn't have a moment to think about what it was going to be like that first day after I quit. So my last day was on a Friday, and over the weekend um, I had this big party. 
um, that I, I mean, I had all my friends there, my family, it was amazing. And everyone was like, you are so brave. This is so wonderful. And you know, the world is out there for you to go and grab onto the brass ring. And the whole weekend I was like, I don't have to go to work on Monday. This is amazing. I don't have to get up. I can walk the dogs whenever I want. I can go to the grocery store in the middle of the day. So Saturday and Sunday were fantastic. Loved it. Monday morning hit. And I said to myself, what have you done? Right. What have you done, Tess? This is a huge mistake. <laughs> you are an idiot. Nobody walks away from their dream job, especially when they don't have another one lined up. Right. And that's how it went for the next several months. It is a roller coaster. It is a massive emotional, psychological roller coaster. However, I would much rather be on that roller coaster than on a merry-go-round. And I think that, I mean, you kind of became a solopreneur of getting into freelancing. And, and that's something that's a big, scary, it's an enticing place for people to go, but it's also a big, scary area. And we've talked about it yeah. a little bit on this show. But it's something that if you're used to the nine to five workday, you can't really get your mind around. But I think right. this is somewhere where networking comes into play and tapping into your network really comes into play. So how did you start once you kind of were like, okay, I need to have something to do. How did you start tapping that network and coming up with things that would give you something to do during the day and start this new next phase in your life? One thing that I encourage people to do, aside from just, you know, kind of the networking that we hear about, which is, you know, go for coffee with people, you know, have, have conference calls with them. I think it's a really great idea to go out and actually spend time with someone who is in a career that you might be wanting to do. Now, this is more applicable if you think you want to leave your actual career, like your what you do for a living, and try something else. Like, say you're a journalist, and you want to go try being a chef. See if you can actually go spend a couple of days with someone who is in that career. Now, that's that's hard to ask for. We're not good at asking people for favors, especially people we don't know. But what you'll find is that if people love their jobs, if people are enjoying themselves in their career, they're perfectly happy to bring you in for a day or two so you can see what life is like on a daily basis. Um, so that goes way beyond just the coffee. That gets you into seeing what that work life is like from, from nine to five or what you know whatever the hours are. And it gives you a sense of what the workplace might be like. So that's that's something I encourage people not to be shy about. You know, tap your network for people who maybe aren't even in what you have done for a living and see if they can introduce you to something that is entirely new. That's when it well, gets really exciting. And I think that that's a good thing to bring up because what what we're really talking about here and what you talk about a lot in your book is that it's not just moving from one radio job quitting your job and moving to another radio job. Right. Like you really went to switch paths completely and switch careers. And you got a lot of stories from people who shared similar situations, who went from corporate America to working at a bakery. So maybe we can share that one. But I was curious if you heard any stories that really kind of made you think, okay, I can do this. If they can do this, if they can do that, then I can do this. Was Maybe that bakery story was the one, but... Um, <laughs> There were well, so many yeah, good so, ones. I'm just curious. 
so the bakery story is yes, Christy Momerick, um, who lives in Minnesota, and she had this. She had a corporate lifestyle, a corporate job for a really, really long time, and she just. She was just sick of it, basically. She was sick of the hours. She was sick of the expectation. You know, the money was great. The prestige was great. But she was just exhausted. And she really didn't want to kind of just go from one workplace where it was it was like that to another workplace that was most likely going to be exactly like that. Um, I talked to a lot of lawyers uh, who have felt this way as well, who, who left, you know, the law firms because they knew that most of them are exactly the same in terms of pressure, in terms of money, in terms of all that sort of thing. So Christy, with no baking experience whatsoever, saw an advertisement for a baker at a local bread company, and she decided she was going to go in and talk to the owner and say, look, I don't know anything, but I'm a really hard worker. I'm ready for a change like this. And is this something where you might take a chance on me and train me? And the owner of the bakery was so impressed with the fact that she figured that she had a passion, that she was ready to do something different, that he said, you know what? Absolutely. You could start on Monday. (laughs) And she now works at this bakery and is absolutely loving it. And, you know, she dealt with the, the, with the, the same thing, kind of things that, that I did and so many people do where you start questioning yourself of, oh, my God, I had this, this high-paying, super cool job. People thought, you know, I had this wonderful lifestyle and now I'm a baker. And do they think that that's beneath me somehow, that that is somehow lesser than what I was doing? And, you know, she struggled with this. And worrying about what people from outside her, kind of how they were seeing her in this new job. And then she just decided, first of all, that doesn't matter. And that's something we should all keep in mind. You do not live your life for other people. You do not live your life based on what the people you think the people around you are thinking about you. Stop doing that. Learn Mm -hmm. that at an earlier age than I did. And what she realized was... You know, there, there was one day just before the holidays where people were coming in and saying how important, how important to their holiday traditions the bread from this bakery was. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm part of that now. I'm part of something that's really special and important for a lot of people in my community. And that's where I derive joy. And that's, I loved that story because it, it speaks to how, you know, you've got to live a life that is bringing you joy. You've got to live a life that is, and have a career that is bringing you some sense of real satisfaction on a daily basis. And if that means that you're quitting your highfalutin, high-paying job and going and doing something that is not remotely related to it and doesn't pay as much and maybe doesn't have the status, go for it. Who cares? As long as you have uh, that element of joy, that's what you need to find. And I'm I just I'm curious because so much of journalism is about having a voice and then specifically when you're the host of a radio show, it is literally you have a voice. I mean you've you work hard to cultivate a voice and that your audience knows and they know your style and they know your the way you structure your sentences and things like that. And so so much of your career, both at Marketplace and before that, was about this voice that you'd created in journalism. So has that been hard to transition? Have you had to kind of change that at all or find a new way to to work it in? Or do you feel like you've been able to just keep it 100%? 
That is such a great question. Such a great question. So yeah, I mean, I am known for my figurative voice, which is, you know, my syntax, how right. I speak. And syntax also was a word my, I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. And also for my for my literal voice. You know, th- yes. this is this is my moneymaker. So for me, you know, I actually struggled, particularly when I started writing the book. I when I when I got the book deal, I said to myself, oh, now you have to become a writer. Mm-hmm. Like capital W. You have to I had been writing radio for 20 years, mm-hmm. which is a completely different style. It's short, it's like half sentences. You write for the radio the way you talk. Yes. It, ideally, you should sound simply, even if you have a script in front of you, which I always did, you should sound like you are merely having a conversation with the audience. So when I when I started writing the book, I told myself, oh, now you have to have pretty sentences and you have to have all kinds of paragraph structure. And and I was fighting, like I was fighting against 20 years of style. And I finally said to myself, stop it. You have 20 years of style. And that's why people want to hear what you have to say. So embrace it. And I ended up writing the book essentially as a conversation. And, you know, it. I'm not going to win any literary awards, but that's not what I'm after. That's that's not what I want to do. Um, so it, it's fun, it's so interesting that you, that you ask that because I think I have been able to keep the voice that I had And a lot of that was just being confident that it was a voice that people would want to hear. And I do want to pick your brain a little bit about money. So we'll do that right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, Sounds like a no. Well, they don't really know what it is. Voices. Music. Breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. (laughs) Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. So we're back with Tess, and I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about money. And I know that (laughs) you had a lot of advice, you have a lot to say, and we could probably dedicate an hour to it. But for people who are are on the edge, who are thinking about leaving, who maybe have a meeting scheduled with their boss, you know, next week, what are, you know, a couple really key things that you think they need to have in order financially before they quit? You've got to prepare financially. You cannot just up and leave a job without having any idea how you're going to keep a roof over your head or, you know, a vehicle in the driveway to get you to wherever you need to go or food in the refrigerator or your cat and cat food. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) And, you know, and, and people have 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 literally said to me, well, 
are you saying that you just quit without a plan B and you don't even think about what your life is going to look like? No, (laughs) that's not what it says. This is about not having a plan B for what you want your life to look like next, like for what you want to do next. This is not leave with no plan B for how you're going to support yourself. So two things. One, it is really important to know what your worst case scenario looks like. So what kind of savings cushion do you have? If you burned through that, what would you have backing that up? Do you have a, a retirement plan that I'm not advocating that you would ever dip into it. You should n- you should never touch your retirement plan. But do you have one that in the worst case scenario you could tap? Do you have friends and family who, you know, could take you in if the absolute worst case came to, to pass, right? Right. These are all the things that you've got to think about and you've got to to, to really line up and look at, you know, what that worst case scenario would look like for you. Now, we don't want to get there. I'm not saying we want to get there. And the way that you make sure that you don't get there, although you have to have that, you know, thought out ahead of time, is to have what we call a freedom fund. There are other F words that you can use okay. that I don't specify in the book. Sure. But you have to have some sort of fund that you can tap if you know, if God forbid the the projects don't come along that you're hoping will. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out what that amount of money is for you. Are you comfortable with having a one-month nest? Are you comfortable with having a three-month nest egg? Um, do you need to sock away six months? Do you need to sock away more? You need to figure out what that comfort level is for you so that you are not panicking in those first few days and weeks after you make a leap. Now, this gets difficult because you can set out a goal for yourself that is totally unattainable. Like, you'll never reach it. You will never have a savings account where you have a year's worth saved up. Part of this is risk. You know, there there is a huge risk to doing this. And you have to decide for yourself, this is why I cannot spell it out in the book for people, you need to decide for yourself how much risk you're willing to take, what that worst case scenario looks like for you, and if that is worth the trade-off for you for either getting out of a toxic workplace or finding something else that's going to turn you on more than your current job does, okay? So don't set, don't give yourself a goal that is unattainable because then you'll never do it. But do figure out what that figure is for yourself. And also know that in all likelihood, you can always go back to what you know best. You know, I talked with a lot of attorneys who left their jobs and they knew that they had skills to fall back on. They knew that at the very least, they could probably go be, you know, a a lawyer with maybe even maybe a small firm instead of a large firm but they knew that it was something that they could go back to. And that's something you have to remember. Those skills that you have, when you when you quit, you don't lose all of those. You know, the, the way I put it, and the, the, actually the way one of, one of my, the people I interviewed for the book puts it is, put your resume in a drawer, right? Take it out a year later. What's changed? Nothing. That's so true. And, you know, you talked about, thinking about that next step, you talked about having conversations at a party and how quick people were to say, 
you know, one of the first questions is like, what's your name? And then, so what do you do? And it made me think about how we are so, I mean, I don't think of myself as being like, I'm a, I am a real simple editor. Like the essence of my being is an, an editor at Real Simple. Like I think of myself as a journalism major in college and, you know, love my family and have these hobbies and things, but it really is tied to who you are. But I feel like that probably has changed for you in that, you know, back when you were working at Marketplace and you could say, oh, I'm the host of Marketplace and I'm the anchor of Marketplace and things like that. And now I imagine it's a little bit different to think about, you know, how your career is tied to who you are. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that change. You know, this is something that, I mean, this calls for massive societal change, so I'm not expecting that it'll happen anytime soon. But, you know, what What I've started doing when I am at a party or anywhere where I'm meeting new people, I actively tell myself not for, for the first question out of my mouth, not to be what do you do? Because that's that is what that's what we ask. And you know what? There are some countries in this world where that is rude. If you add, if that's the first thing out of your mouth, people will be like, that's rude. I wish that was the case here. And what I do now is I, you know, I will say, in fact, I did this over the weekend with people I didn't know. I, w- I will say, oh, so, so what do you, what do you like to do on the weekends? Where's the latest place that you've traveled? And, and wh- why did you like it? What was special about it for you? You can ask almost anything about another person without finding out right off the bat what they do for a living. Now, I'm not saying that it's never going to come up in the conversation. Right. Clearly, we spend 8, 10, hopefully not 12 hours a day, but for some people it is, at your job, and that's a big part of your life. But it should not be who you are as a person. It should not be the first thing that identifies you. And for me, that was a huge, huge struggle because I, you know, I had the kind of job where I did identify myself first and foremost as a national radio host with public radio, with a really, really cool show that people loved. And I loved the way it made me feel when they would react to that. They'd be like, oh, I've heard you on the radio. Oh, I love that show. Oh, do you know so-and-so in public radio? And I would be able to say yes. Mm -hmm. Now I don't have that. I mean, I still know those people, but, you know, now when I answer, you know, well, first of all, now I can say I wrote a book. Yay. Right. Which is very exciting. You're an author. Yeah. But, but it goes beyond that. You know, I, I do start to tell people, well, I'm a traveler and I love traveling and here are a few places that I've been recently that you might find interesting or, well, I've been teaching myself photography. While, you know, I'm not making a living at it, but it's been a really great challenge for me um, intellectually, creatively, to teach myself an entirely new skill that I never had up until this point in my life. So I'll talk about that. And so the process of, again, psychologically and emotionally disconnecting your identity from what you do for a living is super difficult. It is not easy. It is not a fun process to go through. Again, because we are so obsessed in this country with our jobs and what we do for a living. But it's just something that I think is a really valuable exercise to put yourself through. Because, you know, what if somewhere on down the line, you don't take a voluntary leap, but you're pushed? You know, what if you're laid off? What if you're fired? What if something goes really wrong in your career? And it happens to you. 
If you have gone through the really hard work of figuring out what else makes you special, what else makes you valuable in your life, what, how else you can identify yourself, then you'll be way ahead of that game. And as we have learned, especially since the financial crisis of 2008, which I covered day in and day out, there is no such thing as a sure thing in the workforce. There is no such thing as career safety anymore. There is no such thing as a guarantee for 10, 20, 30, 40 years that you're going to be doing what you're doing now. So even if you don't want to take this leap, and I understand that, and maybe you love your job, so you, that's, a, that's a great reason not to want to do it, but start going through the work of figuring out who you are outside of what you do. If you can do that at your age, if people can do that in their 20s, oh my gosh, they will be so far ahead of the game and they will have, I think they'll have richer lives out of it. Not that mine wasn't, but I really wish that I had seen my value, my own sense of self outside of what I did for a living much sooner. That's great. You just... You had so much good advice. And I think while I know that this came for you after a 20-year career, I'm so glad to have read this and come across all this advice early in my career because I know that everyone struggles with, not that I'm thinking of quitting, but everyone struggles with the idea of, right. you know, at some point you have to make some sort of move and you have to move on or move up or do something. So I think that... And, and, and quitting, is there's such a stigma to quitting, right? I mean, that, right. that's another part of it. It's like... You think yes. that if you quit, people are going to be like, oh, my God, what went wrong? Right. But I found actually that the opposite happened. People people were very intrigued by it. People said I was brave. I didn't feel brave, but people said yeah. I was brave. It's something that a lot of people think about and a lot of people want to do, but they don't because they're worried about how it's going to be perceived. And I'll tell you, one of the... <laughs> One of my big rants these days is against HR people who constantly tell everybody that you can never have a gap in your resume, that it is the kiss of death for any future job that you want to go into. Mm -hmm. I think that is just, that is malarkey. And that's not the word <laughs> I was going to use, but okay. <laughs> that is malarkey. There, there, again, as I said earlier, just because you take a break doesn't mean that everything falls off your resume. It also doesn't mean that you fall down and hit your head and forget everything that you've learned. And in fact, if you take a break, if you take even a small break to figure out what you want to do next, that should be valued by your future employer because you've gone through the steps of figuring out what you really want to do and you're ready to come back to it. So you're probably more prepared than anybody to really work hard for wherever you're going to land. So I'm, I'm like, I am spreading this gospel to anyone and everyone who will listen, especially on LinkedIn, right, where mm, all the HR yes. people are, because I think that it's absurd, this idea that that just because you have some sort of small gap in your resume, or even a big one, that that somehow affects your value as a person and as an employee. That That's just dumb. And honestly, I think people your age, I assume, are you a millennial? I'm proud of it. Okay. <laughs> So I love the fact that your generation is starting to push back against this sort of thing. You know, you are the generation where you, you actually are having a lot of jobs in your 20s. For me, you know, you, if, you, if you had a job every two years, it looked like job hopping and you were like, people didn't want to touch you. Your generation is saying, no, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to spend a couple of years here and then I'm going to go here and then I'm going to go here and I'm, you know, here's what I bring you because of that. And I love that you're changing the paradigm. Please keep doing that because I think that that will potentially create a more flexible workforce, a more empathetic workplace, which is, which we need desperately in this country. I'm tired of us celebrating the idea that, you know, that the most valuable employee is the one who never, who works all weekends and never takes a vacation. Mm -hmm. That's not life. That is not life. And so please, you know, keep doing what you're doing because I want you to change the workforce. I want you to change the way things operate. I want you to make it okay to quit. I want you to make it kind of standard operating procedure to go from job to job. I will certainly do my part. Good. <laughs> I will do that. Um, well, thank you, Tess. It was so wonderful to talk to you and get all of your advice and encouragement. And your book, Leap, is available on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. So people should definitely pick up a copy and read all about your experience. We were only able to get the tip of the iceberg today, but you have a lot of great things to say. And I appreciate your time. Sam, it's been such a pleasure. Those were some really, really great questions, and I appreciate it. And, you know, I just, I, I would love it if your generation of people in their 20s really start thinking about this stuff way earlier than I did. Um, because I, I think you'll have a, a more fulfilled, uh, not, not again, not that I'm not fulfilled and happy, but I think you will just have a, a different idea of what a career means. And I think that's really healthy. So, um, you know, start thinking about it, folks. Will do. Thank you so much for joining me today for Adulthood Made Easy. If you have questions or topics you'd like me to cover in the future, just tweet them to me at Sam Zabel and I'll add them to my list. I'd like to thank our producer, Tim Einenkel, and our engineer, Henry Malofsky. And don't forget to grab a copy of the book that has all the answers, The Real Simple Guide to Real Life, which you can get wherever books are sold.